I don't ever remember encountering the name Shadwell till I found it here in our cloister walk. I had to look it up. Did you have to look it up? You probably knew what it was, but I had to look it up. When I think of Thomas Jefferson, of course, I think of Monticello, but Shadwell was a 2,700-acre plantation not far from Charlottesville, where Jefferson was born in 1743. He spent a good deal of his childhood there, and then after he graduated from William and Mary and then studied law for a few years, he went back to live there as a young bachelor with his mother until he was 27 years old. And so if you are a young, single, 20-something young adult with a good job, still living with your mother, and your parents are beginning to complain about your failure to launch, just tell her that Jefferson failed to launch as well. He lived there till he was 27, and he only moved out because the house burned down. And then, of course, he started to build Monticello. A thousand acres of the Shedwell Plantation became the beginning of eventually a 5,000-acre plantation at Monticello. Last Saturday, I officiated at the wedding of my friend Victoria. She grew up with me in my Connecticut church. I've known her since she was nine years old. She's a lawyer in New York City, but she attended the University of Virginia Law School and met the love of her life there, and so she wanted to get married at the chapel at UVA, and she invited me to participate a week before I had to preach this sermon. So that felt like a gift from God to me. The rehearsal dinner was at Monticello. So while I was there, I did some research, and I learned many things, including the fact that our New Testament lesson, John 8, verse 32, our New Testament lesson is inscribed above the entryway of Cabell Hall, which if you've been to UVA, you know, is at the south end of the lawn or the academical village, the nucleus of the UVA campus. And John 8 verse 32 is inscribed there in Greek, of course, because Jefferson was proud of his mastery of the classics, and I was pleased that I remembered just enough of my seminary Greek to make my own rough translation. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Now, you probably know that Thomas Jefferson was not much of a fan of the New Testament. He famously took his own scissors to it and cut out all the miracles and the other passages that offended him and carved out his own slimmer version, more to his liking. But would it surprise you that this was one of his favorite New Testament texts? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. This institution, he'd said when he'd created that university in his own image, this institution will be based on the illimitable freedom of the human mind, for here we are not afraid to follow the truth wherever it might lead. Well, of course, what would you do but follow the truth wherever it might lead? But that was actually a novel idea when the University of Virginia was created. Harvard, Yale, and Princeton had gone before, but they were all created to train Protestant clergymen. They didn't always follow the truth wherever it led. And he loved that university. It was as if it, was, it were his seventh child. Did you know he had a telescope installed at Monticello so he could keep an eye on its construction from a distance on his mountaintop? Now here's a guy who was governor of Virginia 
Ambassador to France, Secretary of State under Washington, Vice President under Adams, Third President of the United States. He had authored the Declaration of Independence, the Louisiana Purchase, the Lewis and Clark Expedition, Monticello, and West Point. I'd forgotten that even the U.S. Military Academy is a Jeffersonian creation. All of this, but he was proudest of his university. And if you've been to Monticello, you know that on the obelisk above his grave there are inscribed three of his proudest accomplishments among this life of extraordinary achievements. Three he was proudest of. Here lies Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, father of the University of Virginia, and do you know what the third is? I'll tell you in a minute. No one remembers why our forebears from 1958 chose precisely these 12 stones to tell our Kenilworth Union story. But I've been suggesting that the common theme might be that these 12 places are places where the mind is unfettered and the spirit unshackled. These are places where revolutions are born and movements begin. The Christian Revolution and the Protestant Revolution and the American Revolution these are places where brave but lonely pioneers stand up to prevailing authority and forge a new path. These are places where required ritual goes to die. My friend Marty says, I have a piece of the Berlin Wall. Would you like to put it in your cloister walk? Marty understands the theme of those 12 places. We hold these truths to be self-evident. He'd written from Philadelphia late in June 1776. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, you know, Jefferson's revolution or revelation has been so successful down the years that we take it for granted. We Americans are Jeffersonian in the marrow of our bones and the ventricles of our hearts and the neocortex of our minds, so we don't even notice how radical it was in 1776. Human beings weren't equal in Europe. Human society wasn't flat. It was stacked. It was a pyramid. Kings and queens at the top, the haughty nobility of inherited wealth beneath them. And beneath them, the professionals, priests, lawyers, and professors. And beneath them, the entrepreneurs and the business owners. And beneath them, the guilds, the skilled craftsmen, carpenters, bakers, shoemakers. And beneath them, the common laborers, the ditch diggers, and street sweepers, and waitresses. And at the bottom of the whole pile, the slaves. You know, even Jefferson's friend John Adams thought this, this idea of human equality was ridiculous. He thought it was preposterous. He thought Jefferson had fallen off the left edge of the world. And I can gather up Jefferson's central conviction by telling you a single story. When he was vice president, Jefferson obviously had to make many trips from his home in Charlottesville to the national capital in Philadelphia. And on one such trip, he stopped for the night at Baltimore's fanciest hotel. Now, Jefferson usually traveled with uh, an entourage of slaves and accompaniers. Uh, 
usually in a carriage of some style and elegance, but for some reason he was traveling alone, no entourage, no bodyguards. He'd just gotten off his horse after a long day of horseback riding, and he was dusty and dirty. You know, all his life long, Jefferson was famously slovenly. People were shocked at what he'd appear in public in, the clothes he would show himself in. And so he, he walks into the lobby of the fanciest hotel in Baltimore and strides across the lobby to the front desk and asks for a room. And the landlord looks him up, up and down scornfully, and says, Sir, we have no room for you. And without complaint or comment, Jefferson strides out of the lobby, retrieves his horse, goes down the road to a cheap Best Western and gets himself a room elsewhere. And as Jefferson's leaving the lobby, another hotel guest recognizes him and goes up to the front desk and says to the landlord, that was Thomas Jefferson, Vice President of the United States of America and the greatest man in the world. Landlord is horrified, of course. He fetches a servant and says, go find that man and offer him our best suite. And so eventually, finally, this servant finds Jefferson lodged at this cheap Best Western and delivers his invitation. And Jefferson says to the hotel manager, tell your boss I have engaged a room here. Tell him I value his intentions highly but if he has no room for a dirty farmer, he shall have none for the vice president. Yes? No room for a dirty farmer? None for the vice president. Because God is no respecter of persons. Back to that inscription above Jefferson's grave. Here lies Thomas Jefferson author of the Declaration of American Independence, father of the University of Virginia, and, do you remember? Author of the Virginia's, Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom. If you're not from Virginia, you might not even know what that is. But it says essentially that government can make no state-established church and never interfere in a person's ability to worship the way she or he wants to. It is the granddaddy of the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. And here's why he thought it was so important. In the mid-18th century, the Anglican Church was the established religion in the Commonwealth of Virginia. It was mandatory to baptize your babies in the Anglican Church, and if you didn't, they could be taken away from you. Presbyterians and Quakers paid the salaries of Anglican clergymen via taxation. Non-Anglicans could hold no public office. Baptists were thrown in jail. Roman Catholics could be banished from the Commonwealth for believing in transubstantiation, and Jews for denying that Jesus was Messiah. And this, for Jefferson, was just an intolerable constriction of the freedom of the human mind. Jesus never forced anyone to believe a certain way, he wisely pointed out. Jesus never preached his good news with coercion. 
It does me no injury if my neighbor believes in 20 gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. And so because of Thomas Jefferson, you can't block a person from public office for her religious beliefs. And so when a presidential candidate in 2015 announces that he doesn't think a Muslim should ever be president in the United States, we can respond in Jeffersonian conviction, well, Dr. Carson, you're entitled to your opinion. I get it. I understand that. I like the Presbyterian presidents myself. Abraham Lincoln, Woodrow Wilson, Ronald Reagan, bipartisan Presbyterians. I like the Presbyterian presidents, but when we say something like that, we're wrestling sort of with the Constitution of the United States, right? And so that Shadwell Stone is there to remind us of the, the mind unfettered, of the spirit unshackled. That's what Shadwell means. No? It doesn't? Some of you are shaking your heads because you've been to Mulberry Row at Monticello. During Jefferson's lifetime, there might have been 125 slaves at Monticello. At any one time, over the course of his lifetime, he owned 600 different human beings. During his lifetime, he freed two and a couple more in his will at his death. More than once, he would give enslaved children on his plantation to his friends as wedding gifts, which meant, of course, that five-year-old children would be separated from their mothers. He kept a concubine for 40 years, and fathered six children with her, which meant, of course, that Sally Hemings was human enough and beautiful enough to have sex with, but not human enough and beautiful enough to breathe free. And he knew it was wrong. I tremble for my country, he said. I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that God's justice cannot sleep forever. He just could never jump that yawning chasm between what he knew was right and what he couldn't live without. And so maybe we, one thing we can learn from this Shadwell Stone in our cloister walk is that we too, like Jefferson himself, are enigmas and contradictions. We have these soaring ideals these inalienable rights, these infrangible convictions. And yet in our daily lives, we fall short. Our actions inevitably betray our convictions. And so, as the British say, we will mind the gap, the gap between what we know is right and what we can't live without. And we'll try to keep striving to see that our actions mimic our convictions. I'll never forget that in the New Testament, Jesus of Nazareth says, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Or that in the Hebrew scriptures, over and over and over again, God introduces God's self to God's people as a revolutionary, a freedom fighter, Che Guevara, Martin Luther King, Thomas Jefferson. 
I am the God who what? I'm the God who created the heavens and the earth. I am the God who dug the Mariana Trench in the Pacific and piled the Himalayas. No, I am the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am the God who sets you free over and over and over again in the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm the God who drowns the pharaohs in the Red Sea. And I'm the God who sends the Cornwallises and Hitlers of this world to their ignoble defeats. And I'm always on the side of the enslaved. One last observation and then I'll quit. And you know, one of the reasons Jefferson didn't free his slaves is that he couldn't afford to. He was terribly in debt at the end of his life. And after he was gone, his children and grandchildren couldn't hang on to Monticello. It fell into the hands of creditors. And eight years after Jefferson died, a naval officer named Uriah Levy came upon Monticello with its dilapidated house and its overgrown fields, and he was horrified. And so he bought it and 216 acres for $2,700. And he and his family kept it for almost 100 years. And do you have any idea why it was so important to Uriah Levy to restore Monticello to a shadow of its former glory? You might be able to tell from Uriah Levy's name that he is Jewish. And it was Thomas Jefferson who made Jewish life in America possible. He was a flawed but a great, great man. And so we've come to the end of our 3,000-year-old journey. Remember what the first one was? Sinai, the place of the Ten Commandments, the place of the Ten Restrictions, the place of the Ten No's, the place of the Ten Nots. That's the beginning. And at the end, Shadwell, the place of the mind unfettered at least theoretically. And I hope during this process we've learned something about who we are as a church and how we got that way and what we hope yet to become because as with Mr. Jefferson, God isn't finished with us yet. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.